0: Thank you for tuning in to our Bear Creek AG podcast. You are about to listen to our weekly Bible study with Pastor Tony. Thanks for joining in. So tonight, before we jump into chapter 9 of Hebrews, I just want to open up the floor and see if there's any questions thus far. Maybe um, I'm... I know this isn't like a regular college class or something like that, or high school where you have to go home and do homework. i really like for you guys to read ahead and study and prepare, but I understand life. Um, But is there any questions, or what have you gleaned? Can anyone tell me something you've gleaned from the first eight chapters of Hebrews that you just, as we've been studying? Anybody? I know I'm putting myself on the spot. You may say nothing, and that's going to be a reflection on me, I know. But I do. I want to slow down. What have we learned? What What are some things that's popped out to you about the book of Hebrews that we discussed? Brother Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's good. And I appreciate that. Um, Yeah. Because that's what this book is about. Obviously, we know that he's breaking down, showing the old covenant, the writer is and how the new covenant is better. We're going to talk some more about that. Did the little thing, the little uh, printout I gave you last week, did that benefit anybody that picked that up? Just showing you the difference between there's like 17 differences. It's not an exhaustive list, obviously. But the seventeen differences—I think I have a few of those left over. If you didn't get one, but it's really neat looking at the old New Testament or the old New Testament, how the the, the differences are. That's good. I appreciate that. Anybody else or anything else uh, that uh, you that has helped you with? Like I said Hebrews is a, Hebrews is a is a little bit tougher book. It's not like it's it's, it's a letter, but it's not like you know Peter writing or, or Paul writing. It's it's a it's it's a, it's a deep theological. A lot of doctrine in there, but as, as the writer is, a, is approaching this Jewish group of Christians to encourage them, you know, and, he, and he's, he's, he's having to break down the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and he, and he does a really great job. Now, us not being from a Jewish background, we may not appreciate that, but if you put yourself in the shoes of an Orthodox Jew, and even today, I mean, in fact, the book of Hebrews, if you have a Jewish friend Uh, that doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, this is a great book to read and to encourage them with because the writer, like I said, we're not sure who he is. Many believe it's Paul, but he is breaking it down. Like, hey, this is why the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. This is how Jesus fulfilled the role of the high priest. This is how Jesus fulfilled the role of the perfect sacrifice. See, this is, this is, tonight, chapter 9 is going to lead obviously to chapter 10 next week. And chapter 10 next week is a summation of all this before he starts talking about faith, which we all like that chapter, the chapter of faith, right? But there's a lot there. So anybody else? I'm sorry, I keep talking. Anybody else have any questions, comments, anything that you just said just jumped out at you and just studied Hebrews? Yes, sir?
1: like we would say today, one foot in the world and one foot in the church.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not the hokey pokey. In other words, either you're either all in or you're all out. And absolutely and and maybe a better way to frame that, Brother Jim, was not necessarily in the world, but trying to go back to Judaism, which is is not the way. That is not the way, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It's either all in or it's all out. There's no there's no fence line. We like to talk about fences, you know, walking the fence line. In reality there's not. Uh you're either in or you're out and then there's no, hey, today I'm in or tomorrow I'm out. So yeah. Okay. Anybody else? And, yes, Miss Fairloof. Um, I enjoyed that part in chapter six of the mm-hmm. um that the fallen away and and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance
1: as they
0: are crucified. Yes. So it impossible. Yeah that, that, that to understand I, Absolutely, because even I struggled. Oh, here's con- here's confession time. Hi, my name's Tony. And I struggled with that when I took that scripture in chapter 6. Uh, when you just kind of take it out of context and read it standing on its own, well, there's, there's no forgiveness of sin. And, 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 and really what he's talking about is, Right, absolutely, not to rehash it, but when you go back and look at the whole totality of the chapter, he's talking about if you go back to Judaism because, and we're going to talk about that tonight, because the Old has passed away, the Old Covenant has passed away, the New Covenant at this point of writing this book, this letter, is now invoked. So going back to the old ways of blood sacrifices of, of goats and lambs, there is no forgiveness of your sin at that point. See? And that, that's right, because that blood no longer worked. It had to be the blood of Jesus, see? Very good. I, I, that was probably my favorite chapter, because even as I personally studied that, I said, oh, okay, makes sense. Yes, ma'am? And I also want to enjoy your Thank you. And after, I'm not looking for, I mean, thank you, but I'm not really looking for affirmation. I'm not down on myself, like, oh, it's a blustery day. Well, I'm, I don't have the spirit of Eeyore on me. I'm just, I just, I just, I, I notice things. And and I know with a small group it's really easy to see who's not here, and I and I get that. Um, and but with that though, I just I, I'm acknowledging that, and I want to encourage you to stay faithful to the class. If not, I'm okay. If there's another class that you find more interest in, and that doesn't fit me, I just want to make sure. I, I think Wednesday night small groups, small groups in general, Bible study. Uh, we change our terminology a little bit. It's so important for learning the Word, but also for the fellowship. And that's what my point is. And, and and like I said, I know some of you are parents, and thank you for bringing your children and putting them in the house of God. And thank you for sticking it out with me, because I know, like I said, sometimes I, can, I get into the nuts and bolts, the nitty and gritty of the Scripture, and that may not be your forte. I get that. So that's where I want you to engage me and slow down. Any, anybody else? But thank you, Ms. Mary Yes. Okay. Good. So I'm like, oh, that makes Good. Yeah. I that. Yeah. I really. You know, I'm almost teaching it like a commentary. If you ever look at a commentary, it goes scripture gives explanation. Scripture. Sometimes you may do a paragraph, but I'm glad. Like I said, that may not be everybody's forte, and I get that. Because like I said, I'm not knocking anything else. We got a book study going over here. We had a book study over here going on. That's. I am not against those book studies. I've done book studies before. I just. I want to offer something that that's different. That's all. That's all. There's nothing wrong with it. So, all right, let's go. Chapter 9 then, okay? Um, just as a refresher, as a review, the book of Hebrews seeks to reassure persecuted Jews. matter of fact, when we get to chapter 10, uh, the writer of Hebrews is actually going to talk about what these people have been through. When you understand what they're going through, it helps you appreciate what he's writing. Okay, and we're not going to hash that out tonight. We'll do that next week. Okay, But basically, he's trying to reassure these persecuted Jewish Christians that Christ, not the Old Testament law, is God's ultimate plan for their salvation. Okay, Not a plan based on works, but a plan based on relationship. We found that out last week. He's going to reiterate that this week. This is presented mostly by showing how God made clear in Scripture His intent to bring about a new covenant. It was always the old covenant we learned last week was obsolete. It wasn't bad. It was nothing wrong. It wasn't imperfect. God made it. But it was man's inability to be able to follow it. And God says, I've got another way. So it became once the new covenant came into existence, the old is obsolete. Why have two covenants? Why go do this when... You can live under the new covenant and you're not bound by legalism, okay? His intent to bring about a new covenant. Up to now, the writer of Hebrews has proven his case using various examples and quotations from the Old Testament. What are, from the very first couple chapters, what were some of the examples he gave that Christ is better? Who, in one of them, he says, Christ is greater or better than angels. Absolutely. Thank you. Don't be shy. Angels, all right? He says that, that Christ was, is better, even better than their greatest leader they ever had. Moses, greatest prophet they ever had at that time, or they looked at him as a prophet, was, was Moses. So he's using these examples and quoting from Old Testament. In particular, the example of the, the priest Machelzadek. Remember we talked about Melchizedek and how he was of another order. He was, as a matter of fact, is, Melchizedek is during the time of Abraham. Now understand the big picture there if you know your Bible history. All right, I'm big into the history part of things. I love the history part of the Bible. All right, Abraham came before there ever was the Ten Commandments, and you're going to find in chapter eleven that his faith was brought about his righteousness was brought about by his faith. His faith in what? Not in the law, but in what God told him to do and leave in his own country. And we find that when he defeated the kings that had come in and, dis- and and taken Lot and his family and all that, that he came to this priest who lived in. Who, was, who, was a, who lived in Jebus, which is today Jerusalem. okay, It's before Jerusalem was conquered by David. And he was a, a priest of the Most High God. That's what the Bible says about him. And that's what, he, that's what Moses said about him in, in the book of law. And so with it, he brings a tithe. And what he's, what the point is that, that, the, that God's making, the writer of Hebrews is making, is that the old order of Aaron, to be a high priest, you had to be of the of the tribe of Levi, and particularly from the family of Aaron, and that was the way. But he says, no, there's a new order, and Christ is a part of this new order that fell under the leadership of, like, Michalzadek, using him as an example, okay? Um, in chapter 8, a quotation from the book of Jeremiah showed how God promised a new covenant from the limitations of the existing agreement, and he said... What what was God's plan when we, we we read Jeremiah? Anybody remember where does God want His law written? Not on stone, but on what? The heart of man, the heart and mind of man. And so we're going to see, and tonight. We're going to look at. He's going to begin by looking at the tabernacle. Okay. So chapter nine continues explaining this preeminence of the new covenant by focusing on two aspects. When we look at this, it's not going to jump out at you, but I'm going to hopefully be able to bring this out. The two aspects is first. First, the superiority. Of where the sacrifice for sin is applied in the new covenant, where was it applied in the old covenant? Where was the sin sacrifice and blood applied in the old covenant for the day of atonement on, on the, the altar. altar in the mercy seat, right in the Holy's holy Holies, for the atonement of sin? All right, where is the new blood applied? Where was the blood of Jesus applied? This altar. Well, it's in it's in the altar in. In heaven, because remember, we talked about how the earthly tabernacle is a form and shadow, uh, a model of what was in heaven. And so, Jesus literally took, I say literally, he went, he gave his life, and the blood had to be applied where? There in, in the presence of God. Okay, we're going to talk some more about that. The second thing is the purity of Christ's sacrifice compared to that of the old covenant, okay? And this will lead to chapter 10, like I said, with the summation of this part of Hebrews. So let's look. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Follow along with me if you can. Now, the first covenant had regulations. First covenant, this is under, if you're not familiar with what the covenant is, it was, it was under the Ten Commandments, the agreement God made with Abraham and all the descendants of Abraham. So the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Okay. A tabernacle was set up in its, in its excuse me, a, you know what? I'm finding with age my vision is not as good as it used to be. I need to get under these lights. Maybe I need to back up. Let me try that again. A tabernacle was set up in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its uh, uh, consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So he doesn't go into raw detail, but we're going to go into a little bit of detail so we can understand it. So, God instructs Moses, when, God, when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt to cross the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, he goes and he meets with God, and God says, I want to be your God, I want you to be my people, but to be in relationship. He, says, he confirmed the covenant he made with Abraham. And he says, and this is what has to happen. And so he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and then he said, I want you to build, because I want to be your God, I want to dwell among you. Remember, the tabernacle was always about God dwelling among His people. Okay, And so He says, I want you to build this tabernacle, a tent basically, and it's a model of what the throne room of God looks like. And that seems kind of weird, but understand, God wants... He says, hey, I'm dwelling... God's everywhere. He's everywhere because of His Holy Spirit. And he says, "I want to dwell among you." So this is what I want you to build. So they built a tent. I won't give you the dimensions of it. I wrote them down, but you don't. It, it, the, the size of it doesn't matter. You can do that research on your own. But basically, the original t- tabernacle—it it was a mobile tabernacle, a dwelling place for God. Not that God dwelt in the tabernacle, but God would come and dwell and meet with Abraham. And later on, when the priest would make sacrifice, meet with the priest in the holies of holies. And it was basic, basically it was, a, it was a curtained wall with an it was open. We believe, pretty confident, it was open on top. With the exception of there was a smaller tent inside the walls, the, these curtain walls. And in there, there's two rooms. There was what we call the holy place, which is the first sanctuary, and then there was the holies of holies. Okay. Now, what was in now out of the open air was the uh, the the brazen altar, which is where they would sacrifice animals. Just beyond that was the, the brazen uh, uh, bowl where they would wash. There's a lot of sacrifices, a lot of symbolism in there. Matter of fact, the whole thing symbolizes, points to Christ. Everything about the tabernacle points to Christ. But then you go into this tented part called the Holy of Holies, and he talks about it. In the Holy of Holies was the lampstand. Okay, There were seven candles that would be burning oil. They were oil-burning candles. Okay. That golden lampstand, it represented the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Christ. Okay? You can look at Revelation, you even see that. In the, okay? There's also a table. As a matter of fact, the lampstand was the only light given in the tabernacle outside the daylight. So when you went inside this very thick holy place, it would be dark, it was thick material, and this would be the light. You can see the symbolism of Jesus is the light of the world. Then you had this little table of showbread. On there were 12 pieces of unleavened bread, and there was wine. Okay, And what this represented, obviously it, it represented the 12 unleavened bread, represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But more importantly, how that points to Jesus is, Jesus became the unleavened bread without sin. He became the wine the blood and through what Christ did there's fellowship. This is called the, show, the table of showbread but it was also where the fellowship offering was also made and it was a place of intimacy with God. It was fellowship. It was FaceTime with God is what that was for the priest. And so we see that the priest would go in and out of the holy place every day. Why? Because they would have to go... And also, there was also the, the, the altar of incense there, which represents the, the prayers of people, the intercessory people, but also the intercessory of what Christ does for us before the throne of God today. So you see all this symbolism. I'm going into this because this was real to them. They, under, they didn't understand this point of the Christ, but this is what he's trying to do, show them how this points to Christ. And the priest would go into the holy place every day to replenish the oil and to keep the incense burning. And they would go in once a week to replace the showbread. They didn't do that every day. Okay. Then beyond that, there's a veil. Now the veil would separate uh, the holy place from the Holy of Holies because inside the Holies of Holies there was only one piece of furniture. Actually, it's was one, two pieces that made one. You had the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the manna and the rod of Aaron and the Ten Commandments were located. Okay? I'm going to tell you what all this represents in a minute. And then there's the mercy seat where the cherubim were at, okay? And so what the, what the curtain represented, it, re- it represented in Christ in this way. What does Christ's blood protect us from? Sin. The blood of Christ covers our sin, but it protects us from the holiness of God. You, you cannot enter God with sin that veil. So when these guys came in to do the showbread and the oil and incense, that protected them from the glory of the presence of God because they were sinful. Just like Jesus' blood when we our righteousness is like filthy rags. But because the blood of Jesus has been applied to our lives, when God sees us, He doesn't see our righteousness, He sees the righteousness of Christ. It protects us from His holiness because nothing unholy can be in the presence of God. Moses wanted to see God. God said, You can't stand in my presence. My glory, my holiness will kill you. So He put him in the cleft of the rock and let him see the backside as he walked by, so to speak, as he passed by. And what did that do? What did the glory of God do to the presence of Moses? Boom! His glory radiated from Moses to the point that the people begged him, please put a veil over your face because it radiated the glory of God. I mean, this is real stuff. And so the veil protected the priest, and just like the blood of Jesus protects us from the holiness of God. Now, when you go inside, the the, the high priest went in the, the holies of holies how many times a year? Once. On Yom Kippur, or as we know it as the Day of Atonement. Once again. And he would first have to go in there and make... or he'd have to sacrifice blood for himself because he's impure. He was sinful. And then he would go in and make sacrifice or shed the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God. So what's in the Ark of the Covenant reminded the people and reminded God. God didn't need to be reminded. That's kind of not the way to put it. But the, 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 uh, the manna reminded the people of God's provision but also how they didn't appreciate it. Remember? All they did was complain. The rod of Aaron reminded that God, that was the rod that that Moses did to part the Red Sea and the water out of the rock and it became the snake in front of Pharaoh, all those kinds of things. It represented authority of God, but it also represented the fact that they didn't submit to the authority of God. And the Ten Commandments reminded them of their sinfulness, how they had disobeyed God. And so what happens is that's all there, they're sinful, but the mercy seat comes down and covers that and the blood's applied to that. So you see how there again, the blood of Christ and, God and the mercy that comes through that, it covers our sin. Although we're sinful, God does not remember or recognize our sinfulness. So, and so he's pointing this out. He says, you know what this means under the Old Covenant. You understand the importance of this under the Old Covenant. Now let me show you how Christ has fulfilled that. Questions? Comments? Yes, John? Because Aaron, Aaron ca- carried the rod. Yeah, Moses did not carry that rod. Aaron did. Yeah, Aaron, it, was Aaron, it was the rod of Aaron. And it was, I believe it was an almond. Forgive me, I should have done more research. My mom, I think it was an almond branch. And even, after it had, uh, and even after it had been cut, it budded. It still budded. Yeah. What's amazing is that the manna never rotted. Because if you remember right, the manna would only last for one day, except for on the Sabbath it would last two days. But the manna survived. So, You had a comment or question, Brother Jim? Now, I was
1: just thinking, before they went into Egypt, I mean, after they came out of Egypt, it wasn't until then that God gave them something visually they could see. That's right. Before then, it was was all faith. That's right. Hearing about God. Absolutely. But once they come out of Egypt, he had the tabernacle, and it was something that was visual they could actually see it. That was the first time that would...
0: Happen. matter of fact, you're right. And what would happen, what was cool is when the, when the high priest went in on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the glory of God, they, they would fill that room with the incense. And, and the glory of God would fill, and it would, it would literally protect the high priest from, from the presence of God. But it would fill it, it fill that room. And, and when Moses, before the high priest was invoked, the role of the high priest, and Moses met with God in there, the, the, it would fill. They could see the glory cloud fall down as God would come and meet with, with Moses. I, I'm reminded of how that the fire that was lit in the tabernacle. Is it hot in here? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, all right, if it doesn't get better, I'll turn the fans on for you, okay? But what's amazing to me is that when the fire that was burning in the tabernacle was not man-made fire. When, when they consecrated it, God sent fire and it lit it. And then when, when Solomon built the first permanent tabernacle and they, and they dedicated it, God did that again. It's really, it's really neat. So this was, this was uh, important to the Jewish people. It was real. It wasn't something fictitious. It wasn't just a symbol of their their religion. It's where God God wanted to dwell among His people, and this is where He did it in the Old Testament. So, I saw hand. Yes. I would like sometimes kind of, there's so much to the temple. There's the the pools, and there's the fire. Yes. And there's so much more that I don't. I tell you, it would be, it would behoove you to study it. I know a couple of years ago in my New Year's series, I did, I, I I preached about how the temple and and did it that with worship, and I had I probably had more compliments about that series than probably any of them I've ever preached because it just brought it it brought it to life and the fellowship that, that comes with it. So. Um, but let's let's continue on. So Hebrews uh, chapter 9 verse 6 says, when everything had been arranged like this, like this, meaning how the temple was set up, the tabernacle, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on the ministry. So we've kind of talked about that, how they would go and they'd fill the lamp with the oil and they'd show bread and keep the incense burning. But verse 7, "...but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people uh, that had committed an ignorance." And that's something I never really had thought about, and then when I read this, I went to such the day of Yom Kippur. Remember, if the Jewish people sinned... Now this is important as we look at what the blood of Jesus does for us, okay? Uh, because his 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 blood is perfect. This was an imperfect way, okay. Uh, but. Th- when you knowingly acknowledgely sinned, you were expected to make sacrifice for forgiveness of your sin there was constant sacrifices going on constantly it wasn't just once a year that they did a sacrifice that was for the nation and in this case it's for sins of ignorance sins that you of omission, things you didn't sins that you committed that maybe you didn't know you committed okay that that's how i read this as i studied this but if you did something wrong during during the week then you were to go and you were to cleanse yourself and depending on what you did, you may have to have a time of consecration of yourself, separation from the from the from the from the uh, the, the tribe, from the group, and then you would have to go and make a sacrifice of some sort for your sin. All right, and so this once a year was for the nation; is for the priests, high priest first of all, then it's for the nation. But it was sins of. Ignorance. I found that kind of interesting. So, there again, I'm not a know-it-all. I have not, I'm still studying the Word of God just like you are. And I thought, well, I never, I never thought I've read that before, but never really gave it that much, that much thought, okay? But look at this. Sins of ignorance were the specific aim of the Day of Atonement. It was assumed that known sin would be taken care of through the regular sin offerings and the daily sacrifices. In this respect, this is, this is what... Hang on, I'm get right with you, Brandon. In this respect, Jesus' work is far greater than the work done on the Day of Atonement. Why is, is Jesus' blood greater than the blood on the Day of Atonement? Why? In what, in what aspect? Think about it, what I just said. They'd have to go daily to make a sacrifice for sins that they committed daily, and then once a year there was the Day of Atonement for sins committed in ignorance. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice, and you only had to die once. Absolutely. So that's how much superior the sacrifice of Christ is. And that's what he's pointing out. If they went back to Judaism, that means every week they may be having to sacrifice an animal because they talked back to their parents or they, they ran this red light or, you know, whatever it might be, right? They got mad at the, at the p- priest, whatever, right? Uh, but in this case, there, it doesn't. And he's going to get to that here at the end of this chapter if we get that far tonight, how Jesus doesn't have to die over and over again. It's really powerful. He said, really, jump into this. This is really, really good. Brandon, you had your hand up. What was your question or comment? If we're going over the blood of Jesus and the day of atonement and all the connections there, does it, well, also, it's been a long time since I've had questions. It's okay. No, we won't because we're, we're going through the scripture, so we probably won't won't jump jump there. But yeah, the idea of a scapegoat, they'd lay their hands on it absolutely. And now Barabbas was a type of that scapegoat. But no, um, no we probably I, we won't just simply because it doesn't really, we're not going to go into it quite that detailed. I thought it was interesting. I've been reading John. So yeah. I just thought it was interesting. It kind of goes together. Sure. And I yeah. Was, I was just curious. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The old had to pass away before God's new way could be revealed. And he's saying, look, the old way's gone. It's obsolete. The new way's come. The new way being Christ as as the ultimate sacrifice and your high priest. And this is a huge point this is a huge point for the writer. Um, he'd already made, uh, uh, you know, he'd already con- con- talked about how it was obsolete, and this is this is just a huge, huge uh, point that he's making here. This is an illustration. Verse nine says for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Hear that. I'm going to read that again. This is an illustration for the present time. He's saying the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the old sacrificial form is an illustration for now, indicating that what they did, the gifts that they brought, the sacrifices that they they made, uh, were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It did not cleanse their conscience. It did not forgive them of their sin. We have to remember that, okay? They are only a matter of food. He's calling it what it is. It's food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. What he says by illustration or symbolic is that's an ancient word that, in Greek that means parable. We say it parable today, but it's P-A-R-A-B-O-L-E, and now we, we, we say it differently. But it was an illustration. He's saying that was an illustration, of foreshadowing. It was pointing to Jesus. He says that's, that's all there, there was. There was a deeper truth to the new covenant, a deeper truth to the old covenant, which is revealed in the new t- covenant, and the tabernacle simply pointed to the perfect work of Christ. Okay? The sacrifice the priests made under the old covenant, the blood of goats and sheep, could not make the priests offering those sacrifices perfect and cleanse in regard to their consecration. So think about that. What he's saying here, let me just put it in, in common terms here. What he's saying is that the Old Testament form of blood sacrifice, it was an external thing. Okay? If you went and touched something unclean, you would have to go do something externally to make yourself clean. All right. Moses consecrated the people with, 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 with blood of a lamb. He consecrated the tabernacle with the blood of a lamb. It was, but it was all external. And what he's pointing out is it didn't do anything for the inner man. It, it, would, it was a sacrifice so that God for a time, would not see their sin, but it was only for a time. It was not a per a permanent solution to their sin situation, to the condition of their heart. That's why he says, I don't want to write my law on tablets of stone. I want to write it on their heart. I, everything is external for them. I want to make it internal. That was always God's intention. But man, the Jews took it and made it legalism. And we do that today with Christianity, don't we? What is sin? How close can I get to sin before it... Be, you know, we, we do that in our own lives, don't we? We... we and God says, I don't want it to be that way. I don't want it to be you living out of fear of condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ. I want you to not want to sin because you're in a relationship with me and that sin separates you from me. Brother Jim? I
1: think what you're really saying here is the old covenant allowed people to know God. The new covenant allowed people to have a relationship. Yes. With they could not... They couldn't have a relationship.
0: Moses had a relationship. And it was the high priest that could be in, only in the presence of... And once a
1: year. Yeah, once a year, but not a day. He was...
0: God was mysterious. Now, God is still mysterious. I don't claim to know everything about God. But not mysterious as afar far off. More mysterious than the fact that I can't figure God out. There's a difference there. See? When, when, when you build a relationship with somebody, that person's mysterious to you because you don't know them that well. But as you get to know them, it's not that they're mysterious because you don't know them. They may be mysterious because you know them better. You see my point? What I'm saying is it? you're right, Brother Jim. It's about relationship. Mary Lou? It It is. Now, I will say this. Yeah, I, I will say this. A lot of it is that way. No, I, I, I find some... I, find, I won't say comfort. That's not the word I'm talking about. I find some intrigue in some of their rituals because of what it does point to. I think, okay, that's... Okay, they seem to respect things a little bit more than possibly probably we do. Like their respect for communion. I don't agree with their point of communion. Okay? Because according to them... Now I'm not an expert on Catholicism, but as I see from their communion, is the fact that the blood and wine really becomes the body of blood and the body and blood of Jesus, which, and if I understand it correctly, it means that He's died again for them. Well, Christ doesn't have to die again; He died once and for all. It's it's just to remind us of what He's done. See? Yes. And going to them for prayer, for forgiveness, and things, confessing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 it, it, it is. I think so. And sometimes there is an uncomfortability. If I'm very transparent with you, sometimes I become uncomfortable with how, what's the word, not callous, how uh, casual, is the word I'm looking for, relaxed we, we become with our relationship with God. There is a sense that he is Abba Father, Daddy. And I have a relationship with my earthly father. And I call him father, I call him dad, I call him many things. But yet, there is a respect for him and an awe of my dad. I'm not so comfortable. I, I can go and hug him, and I can kiss him, and I can tell him I love him. But yet, there's, there's, there's this sense of respect for my father. And I think sometimes we, we, we get too Casual, maybe comfortable with our relationship with God. You should, you can boldly approach him. You should, as a child, want to jump in his lap, if I can use that terminology, that word picture, but yet there's a sense of of awe. We, need, we don't need to lose of who God is. I mean, he spoke everything into existence. Think about that. So, um, yeah, I think, I think so. And I, that's what I'm saying. I guess sometimes I appreciate other denomin- religions and denominations as an approach to how... how respectful, and reverent they can be at times where we sometimes lose it. That, for instance, I, for me, when we do like the Tenebrae service at Easter or we do our family communion on Christmas Eve, anytime we do communion, we shouldn't go through the motions. You guys know how much communion means to me personally, but it's those moments are just reverence to me. It's like, oh, you know. I think sometimes we take that a little to get too comfortable with that. Just go through the motions with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a good point, though. Good question, good point, comment. Yeah. yeah. So let's see where we're at here. We're almost out of time here. Um, the sacrifice the priest made under the Old Covenant could not make the priest offering those sacrifices perfect and clean in regard to the, their conscience, the conscience. And think about that. If it couldn't clean the high priest who's making the sacrifice for the people, what does that tell about the sacrifice he's making for the people, right? The earthly nature of the temple, as well as the limited nature of the an, animal sacrifice, it pointed to the need for a, a more permanent spiritual solution to sin. And that solution is Jesus. It's Jesus. He's making his point. Um, Jesus is the superior sacrifice. Now the writer changes gear and shows us the superior sanctuary of the New Testament. And we are going to be hard pressed, but we'll, we'll see how far we can go here, okay? Verse 11, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not a part of this creation. So Jesus as our high priest did not enter the earthly replica of the, of the tabernacle. Jesus, because he wasn't of the family of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, he couldn't legally go into the holies of holies. He made that, The writer made that case already. So he didn't, but where did he go? He ministered in a superior sanctuary, which is in... In heaven, he's making his point—the very throne room of God—and this is, ob- is obviously a place greater than anything human hands could make. God gave Moses the directions; they made it, but it was a model of what heaven is like, and it, the heaven is greater. Therefore, Jesus didn't go to the earthly tabernacle of holies, holies; he went to the actual holies of holies, where the presence of God dwells day and night. Well, there is no day and night in heaven; always. Let me make that clear to you for just a minute. Sometimes we we, we miss this in our in our thinking about God. God is everywhere, but in what form is God everywhere? It's It's Holy Spirit. Where does God reside all the time? His throne room. God's in his throne room. He's God. He rules from his throne room. He's a he's a God of justice. Okay? God of judgment in a way. Where does Christ reside? the Bible tells where does Christ resides, we say He resides in our heart. How does He reside in our heart? Through the Holy Spirit. Where is Christ actually at? He's at the right hand of the Father in the throne room as what? Our High Priest, as our Intercessor. See, get that. If you'll ever get that picture, okay. God is everywhere by His Spirit. When the earth was without form and void, God was in His throne room. He spoke the Word. The Word was Christ. According to John one one, was Jesus. When he spoke, that's the authority of God's word. He spoke it, but where was the Spirit? Dwelling over the un, unformed earth. And when God spoke the word, which is the authority, which is Jesus, Jesus' authority, the Holy Spirit got in action. See? All right? The reason why I say that is sometimes we, we get, he's everywhere, he is, but through the form of, he's one God in three forms, if I can use that terminology that way. He's, we're, we're, he's triune God, one Godhead, all have equal authority. Jesus says, "You see, my Father, you've seen me." Same way with the Holy Spirit. Okay, He is God. Okay, so, anyways, I want to make sure I made that clear. Okay. Uh, would, it be, would it be right to
1: say that Jesus couldn't go into the throne room in the presence of God because He was the presence of God? Oh, you know, when you've seen sure. When you see me, you've seen the Father. Yeah. So basically, He was man. He was the Messiah, and He was the presence of God.
0: Yes. And, and here's the thing about Jesus. He, he is still in physical form. His glorified, glorified body. You will see his scars when you get to heaven. When he became flesh, that didn't, that didn't change. He just became glorified. See, You're going to have a glorified body. At the rapture, you will have a glorified body. And then the nature and the the laws of physics will no longer have any bound on you. As Jesus walked through a wall and yet he ate fish. You'll be able to walk through solid objects and you'll still, I believe you'll still be eating. I think we're going to go back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. And you'll have chores, you'll have jobs, you'll do things and you'll be productive and we know that revelations, whether speaking symbolically or reality, that there are trees of life lining the river that comes out of the throne of God in the new, in the new Jerusalem, and that the multitudes or the, the, the nations will come and eat of this. See, I don't know why I'm chasing that rabbit a little bit, but I'm just trying to help piece things together for you. It's not pie in the sky. It's a, heaven's a real place, and there will be a new, this earth will pass away, and He will create a new earth, and, and, and heaven will descend, New Jerusalem descend. And when you can go to Revelation and read, it's going to be a beautiful place. The streets of gold will be there. See? And you'll have a glorified body. Woohoo! I'll be 28 and a half years old. I'll weigh about 180 pounds, and I'll be lean, mean, good looking, loving, fighting machine. I'll be buff, right? The only problem with that is there's no giving or taking in marriage. So it's, not, it's just to be nice looking, I guess, for the glory of God. It's not to attract my wife or any other woman. So, anyways, boy, I'm chasing a rabbit now. It's just to be healthy, right? What well, God intended, John? Absolutely. 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 So, animal sacrifices uh, animal sacrifice was sufficient for a temporary covering of sin, but only a perfect sacrifice could obtain eternal redemption. I don't think I read verse 12. "...He did not enter the means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption." And so that's where animal sacrifices was temporary. Covering of sin, but only a perfect sacrifice could obtain eternal redemption. Jesus' sacrifice was superior in that it was perfect. It was, And Brother Jim brought out a point. I put it in my notes last week. He did it voluntarily. He didn't fight going to the cross. Right? He did it voluntarily. Um, it's relational and motivated by love. Jesus wanted to go to the cross for your redemption. That's love. like I preached this past Sunday. That's real love. Real love. Okay, I think it's noteworthy that at the earthly tabernacle, the sacrifice was made outside the veil. Think about that. The earthly, taber- the earthly sacrifice was made on an altar outside the holies of holies, outside the holy place, but then it would be taken into the holies of holies. Jesus died outside of the heavenly holy of the holies. He died here on earth, but yet his blood was taken in there. It's, you, you see all the... I hate to say symbolism. It's, it's foreshadowing of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, Verse 13, "...the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are..." Here's what I was alluding to earlier. "...outwardly clean." How, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the, through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, listen to what He says, cleanses our conscience, that's not on the outside, from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We're going to end right here. I'm going to, I'm going to finish this point because I like this point. I think it's worth noting. Plus, you may have some questions or comments as well. The old covenant form of cleansing from sin took place Outwardly, I mentioned that. Okay, it was an outwardly. You would sprinkle the blood on the altar for the remission of your sin. It was an outward sprinkling, an outward sprinkling. Okay, you would take uh, ashes from the altar, a uh, brazen altar. You would take ashes, and there's a big pool of water that the priests would go and they would cleanse themselves. They would make they, they they're covered in blood. They're covered all the, It was symbolic. Of, by the way, it's symbolic of being washed in the word. New Testament uses several places where it talks about washing in the Word. This is that, but what they do is to make that water holy, if you want to call it that. They would take some of the ashes from an offering and they would sprinkle it in the water. Well, we know that would make it unclean in the sense of our thinking, but it symbolically or ceremonially made it clean. And so, but what? So they they could wash themselves, make themselves ceremonially clean outwardly. It was the old covenant; it was all about outward stuff. It was all outward, okay. Even the law was outward. It was not in their hearts. It was on tablets. It was outward. They would write it, write it on the post of the, you know, it was outward, okay. Um, Even Moses sprinkled, like I said, the people and the articles of the tabernacle with blood to consecrate them, okay, to to make them holy. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to even restore our damaged conscience. It's an inwardly thing. Our conscience is a wonderful tool from God, but it's not perfect. The Bible even talks about your, your conscience can be scarred, your conscience can be defiled, your conscience can actually be evil. Where does sin originate? In your thinking. We know that. James says that. It has to first be a thought, and when you dwell upon the sin, the temptation of it, the temptation of it is not sin, but when you dwell upon it, then you act upon it, it becomes sin. It becomes sin. See, you, you, you kind of see this, this picture that 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 is painting, and so it's the conscience, and that's that's where it, when we remember in the in, in the Bible when it talks about Jesus, like we say Jesus comes to your heart. He doesn't come into the beating organ in your chest. The heart, from Jewish standpoint, is your emotion, the real you, brother Jim. Would that be our soul? It is our soul. Our soul. our soul is made up of our likes, our dislikes, our, our, it's, our, it's our part of our conscience. What is it? Think about it. what is our conscience? Our conscience is the way that we, we decide what we're going to do whether right or wrong. Our psyche. our psyche, absolutely. This body's going to go away, but the real Tony T's lives on forever. Now, I'm not going to say I'm going to love pizza when I get to heaven, right? But the things that I love, the things I like, the who I am, my quirky... God made me this way, personality, okay, my parents may have had something to do with it, all right? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to say I'm going to be sarcastic when I get to heaven. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to be like, but, but the real me. I'm going to know you. You're going to know me. I'm assuming that my body, my glorified body, is going to look like this body, but just, like I said, buff and, and in shape. You know, there's some things we don't really know, but my point is, it's is, is, is the real you. This is not the real you, Right? Mama lives is still alive. And the body is dead, but Mama's well alive today, living in the presence of God. And so that's that's what that's what Jesus did, where the old covenant would make you ceremonially clean. It did nothing for the condition of the heart, the conscience. For a period of time until you sinned again, you were okay with God. But what Jesus did, it deals with the real you. Just as Moses sprinkled blood over the articles of the tabernacle to concentrate them, consecrate them for use in ministry to God, now we have been consecrated, made holy by the blood of Jesus, and can now be used in the service of God. You, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? He lives within you. You are part of a royal priesthood, but not of the family of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. See? John, and then I'll come to Brother Jim. I just wanted to say, and it's kind of going down the same road, but after many hours of discussion with Josh, we talking about the thought of starting with, as sin starts with thought. So mm-hmm. We got all into this, and we come to the conclusion: so does an act of faith. Sure does. So it starts with a thought. Just got to act out on it, just
1: like you can act out on
0: sin. Okay. What? Okay. The, here, to make your point. We're told, I believe it's Peter. It says, believe in your heart. That's a thought. Confess with your mouth that you're saved. Think about that. That's an, act. That's an act. It's belief and acting on it. Same way with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Come on, y'all that have not been baptized or struggle with how do you get baptized, he doesn't, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and make your tongue waddle and say things you don't want to say or, or don't understand. It's just like salvation. Believe in your heart, confess your mouth. Believe in your heart that you have been baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. You ask and believe. You don't have to beg God for that. He wants to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And then what is the, the speaking in tongues? Is your act of faith that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's evidence for you that the task has been... I, I, I'll say complete, but it's not complete because it's an ongoing... Just like your relationship with Christ, you're saved, but you're not fully saved yet, right? You're in the process of being saved, right? You see my point? You're fully saved in the sense that if you receive Christ as Savior, you're saved. You're not going to hell but you're not perfect yet. That's a process of saving you. And you won't be fully saved to when? You get to heaven. There you go. It, it, we don't think of things in that time. But trust me, my many years of children's pastoring, ministry, is, I've had to break it down where kids can understand. Now, I don't mean insult you, I'm just saying that's the way it is. Same with the Holy Spirit. If, 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 if we're told in the Word of God just to ask and receive, then what's the hindrance? You? in the fact that you have to believe it? Well, then does that mean I just make a sound? and Okay, let it begin that way. I know that sounds, oh, well, that's sacrilege. No. If you, if you ask, if, if what is the evidence you've been saved? You confess it with your mouth and then out of faith, you start living the life that the Word of God says you should live. Not knowing, other than the fact that you believe it, that you're saved. But there's evidence of your salvation because now you're living for God. That's why I'm saying, if you don't change the way you live when you accept Christ, I, I know it sounds bad, I'm going to question. Now, I'm not. It's not perfect the first night, the first day, the first week, the first month. You may not be perfect, but there has to be some kind of transformation in your life that you're tr- attempting to live the life God designed you to live. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. You believe, then you start, well, I just start making random noises. I'm not going to tell you what, to, what noises to make. I just know how it happened for me and how I've had other people. And by faith, they start making noise. And then takes over, the Holy Spirit takes over, and you have a prayer language. And then what's the evidence of it? You walk in boldness. Now your witness gets stronger. You're no, longer you're no longer stumbling along with the temptations of this world like you were before the baptism. Yes! It is. But we've got to get off this point of doubt. How do you know you're saved? Well, I, I confess Christ. I believe in my heart. Amen! Now you go live the life that God wants you to live and watch how the Holy Spirit comes along. Not the baptism, but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Then go and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and see how much more dramatic your life becomes for Christ. You Trust me on this. Okay? Alright, I just said a lot there in the last five minutes. Yeah, kind of chase. I won't say chase to ride. I think it goes very well with what we're talking about tonight. Alright? Brother Jim. I'll let you uh, ask a question, make a comment, and we'll shut her down. When you talk about the
1: glorified body, I was just thinking one of the biggest changes in receiving your glorified body, the one thing we will lose is the scales over our eyes. Absolutely. And then everything we can see, knowledge.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Th- this is how I. Now, I'm. I'm I'm, this is my thinking about it. And I could be wrong, so if you want to disagree with me, you're, you're welcome to. I won't, I won't argue with you. We often say we get to heaven, we're going to ask God a lot of questions. I don't think we will, because I think at that time we'll be fully transformed into the image of Christ and we'll have the mind of Christ. We're going to know. We're going to know. We're just going to know a lot of this stuff. Now, are we going to know everything? I don't know if we're going to know everything about God, but I think all these questions, you know, God, why did this happen? Why did you permit this? Why didn't you stop this? All these things we think we have questions about, uh, I think we're going to be able to look back in time and see how God created everything. I think we're going to be able to do that. Why not?
1: I think we have the ability now, because they say even Einstein, as smart as intelligent as he was, used less than 10% of his...
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So...
1: There's so much there that we... Absolutely, yeah. With.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I, just, um, I, I just don't think we're going to have a lot of questions. And what brought us to this point, and as I go back, is the fact that the work that Christ did is not... So, he didn't come to change and, and, and make the outside holy. He came to make the inside holy. And by the inside being holy, the outside becomes holy. He comes to minister and, and to deal with your conscience, the real you. And when He changes the, your way of thinking, then sin no longer has a dominance over you. For you teachers, once a kid grasps a math principle, it no longer constracts that student or binds them up from being able to do math in that, in that particular area. It's like, huh, and so it is with our minds. When He comes in, but the Old Covenant was all about the external and they felt like the Jews of the Old Covenant felt like if they could do all the external, it made the inside right. But it didn't. You can't change the the changing the outside doesn't change the inside. It's changing the inside that changes the outside. That's what the writer is pointing out here, okay? In in a, in a roundabout way, but basically that's what he's trying to say here, okay? Well, let me pray over you, and I'm going to shut this machine off. And if we want to keep talking, we can. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight, Lord, for the discussion, God. Uh, Lord, it's really not about the destination of finishing the chapter as much as just understanding the meat, God. There's meat in this chapter tonight, Lord. And I pray, God, that you help all of us process what's been said, and, Lord, and to apply it to our lives. May we go continue thinking on this, Lord, and go back and read this part of the chapter, God, so that we can fully grasp what you're trying to tell even us today in the 21st century, Lord about the role that Christ plays as our High Priest, as our perfect sacrifice. Now, Father, be with us and take us home safely tonight as we leave this place. God, I am believing, Lord, as we come back Sunday, God, that we're going to come back and we're going to see the house of God full of worshipers. And Lord, not just full of worshipers, Lord, I want to see people here Sunday morning who are unsaved, God, that have been invited, maybe through the cup of cheer invite, Lord, to come to your house and to, to celebrate Christmas, even though they may do it in a secular way, God so that they can be introduced to to your Son. God, introduced to you through Jesus, God. Allow that, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining our podcast. Here at Bear Creek AG, our goal is to help others know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Have a great week.